it's uh, the, the first Sunday back where I get to be back in the pulpit after uh, being ill, and uh, it's uh, the first uh, Sunday back that I think a lot of us are feeling better again, finally, by God's grace, uh, been able to talk with many of you, brothers and sisters, and just praise God for His sustaining grace and His his care and his mercy to spare us uh, from, uh, even from death. Uh, there were some scary moments these past couple of weeks for some of us, and we praise God that he was gracious. Isn't he a good God? Uh, I was praying about what to bring us this morning, and I was looking, and my, my default is to just continue on and with what we're looking at, I want to make sure that it was appropriate, and I think God answered my prayers, our prayers, that what we have this morning is an appropriate word for this morning specifically. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, but we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 22. It says, Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh. This is God speaking out of the burning bush to Moses. I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel. And I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, verse 15, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and so now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who, who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and she'll put them on your sons and daughters, 
Thus you shall, you will plunder the Egyptians. Title of this sermon is A God Who Cares. A God Who Cares. And I desire this morning, church, that your faith in God would outweigh your fear of suffering. That your faith in God would outweigh your fear of suffering. You know, in, in the context of America, it's, been, it's become expected that American presidents will actually visit the sites of major natural disasters uh, in the nation. I mean, dating back to Calvin Coolidge in the 1920s, the American citizens have always called on their leaders to be present in times of suffering. And this was made crystal clear, uh, if there was any doubt, in the events of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Hurricane Katrina spread across 400 miles with sustained winds of up to 125 miles per hour. The storm, the storm surges and the waves were as high as 30 feet. And that's, this led to widespread flooding and the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people from their homes in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. The damage was estimated at over $100 billion, and it's estimated that more than 1,000 people died in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. The president of that time, George W. Bush, was dealt this card, you could say, how to deal with this. Now, opinions, of course, with politics differ widely on how you know, George W. Bush's response was to Hurricane Katrina, whether he actually did his job concerning federal aid and mobilizing help on the ground. Now, what, whatever your opinion of how President, former President Bush handled the situation, even the former president himself admitted at least one blunder. It was this, that instead of... Uh, ending his vacation short and going directly to the site of the natural disaster, he first needed to stop by the White House. He needed to stop by the office first. And going to the White House, he decided to fly over the, the, the neighborhoods and the cities that were affected by Hurricane Katrina. And, of course, he allowed a uh, photo op there on Air Force One. And instead of the f making sure that the first image of the president of that time would be him visiting the site of Katrina, he allowed for the first image would, to be of him flying over the flooded communities, looking out a window of Air Force One. Politically... Uh, in the eyes of the public, uh, this was devastating to people's view of the president. He allowed himself, he even said, he allowed himself to be seen as detached, distant, and uncaring of the suffering of the American people. Now, Christian, in times of suffering, 
in times of trial, it's easy to doubt God, to doubt his love, to doubt his care and concern, to question his power, his abilities, his wisdom and his plans, to doubt his goodness. We can be like Moses. We can doubt that anything good can come out of our current situation. But dear saints, I, I call you, I believe the Lord calls you this morning to know two things. One is to know that your God is not distant. And two is to know that your suffering is not wasted. Those are our two points this morning. Know that your God is not distant, and know that your suffering is not wasted. First, know that your God is not distant. Verses 15 and 16, again, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus ye shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, again, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Our Lord, Yahweh, tells Moses of who he is. He reminds Moses and tells Moses to remind the elders, the adults, the grown-ups of Israel. Remind them that I am the God of your fathers. Notice, it's not I was the God. I used to be the God of Abraham. I used to be the God of Isaac and Jacob. No, I am the God. This is who I am. You shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is who I am. I am a present reality. I am not st stuck in the pages of history, he's saying. Now, as he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's, of course, uh, reminding them and us, that he is the covenant-keeping God. Christian, when you go through suffering, you need to remember who your God is. And that's what God is doing here. He's reminding you who he is. Fill your mind, Christian, when you go through struggles. Fill your mind with the greatness of God, not the greatness of your suffering. Fill your mind with the greatness of God, not the greatness of your suffering. This is exactly what God is doing here. He is the covenant-keeping God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a promise to Abraham. He reiterated that promise to Isaac, his son. And he made that promise again to Jacob. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. When God vows something to his people, he doesn't forget it. It doesn't fall through the cracks. This is our God, the God who has always been. And that's exactly what he says when he says, this is my name forever in verse 15. 
this is my name forever, meaning that he is the immutable God. This is who I have always been, he says. The, the nature, the character, and the promises of God do not change. They're saying you must remember and believe that the love of God does not change. He is who he has always been. And your trial, your suffering, whatever it might be this morning, doesn't change who he is. You can look back to how he has cared for you. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, you have, or rather God has, a track record with you, doesn't he? You can look back at how he has provided for you over the years. You can look back at how he has been faithful to you over time, how he has made promises and made good on those promises. You can do that. He wants you to do that. This is why if you are paying attention to what's going on in your life, if you've been a believer for any amount of years, the the norm is that the trials in your life actually grow over time. The difficulties, the the weight of decisions, the the weight of, of struggle actually grows incrementally over time. And this is intentional by God. This is what he does. Because he is building your faith. He is proving himself over and over and over again. So that you can look back when, when this trial that you are presently in seems big and insurmountable. You can look back at what God has done and say, well, if he has been faithful then, he'll be faithful again today. You can trust him. Not only can you look to the past, but you can look to the future. He says, this is my name forever. He also says, to all generations. This is my memorial name to all generations in verse 15. So this is, what he's saying here is you can be confident, not just because of the past, but you can be confident in his unchanging goodness for the future. There will be generation upon generation upon generation of believers who will experience the goodness and the grace and the provision and the faithfulness and the care of God. So if those coming generations will experience that, is he going to stop now in your generation? No, absolutely not. You can trust him. God says, this is my memorial name. He's speaking of Yahweh, I am. This is his memorial name. Now we looked at what it means for him to be I am at length a few weeks ago. So I encourage you to, to listen back at, the, at, those, at that message. But when he says this is my memorial name, literally it, it's, this is his name of memory. This is his remembrance name. This is when you have a memory of God. When you remember God, when God's 
name and reputation has a kind of renown. It is this. I am. This is how God wants you to remember him. As the I am. Now again, this means that he is eternal. That he is immutable. Unchanging. This I am name, this memorial name, speaks of his self-sustaining aseity. Speaks of his stunning glory. Speaks speaks of his omnipresence, yet his intimacy. He is present everywhere, but yet present with us. Speaks of his truthfulness, his goodness, his boundless knowledge. He is not growing in his understanding. Speaks of his love, his sovereignty, his kind mercy, his omnipotence, his all-powerful being, being used for your good, Christian. His grace. And of course, the perfection of all of these attributes and more. All of these attributes, all of the, what makes God God, are fully present, fully existing at all times for all eternity. So he is always perfectly righteous, yet at the same time always perfectly merciful and forgiving and loving. He is always perfectly sovereign, even over your struggles, your suffering. And yet at the same time, he is always perfectly caring and good and gracious. He is all of those things at once. There's no conflict within him. He doesn't get tired of being patient and then then become wrathful. He doesn't become sick and tired of us as his children and then become... Uh, a disciplinarian. No. He is always perfectly patient, merciful, kind, gracious. He is always perfectly loving towards his children. He is I am. And what he's doing in your life, Christian, is making a name for himself. He is building his reputation over time. And we must go through struggles in order for him to prove he is these things. Now that's exactly what he gets to in verse 16. After he tells Moses to go and gather the elders, and he tells him to remind them of who he is as the God of the fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he tells them, he tells Moses to tell them that he is indeed concerned about you at the end of verse 16. I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. God is concerned about his people. He cares. When he says, I am indeed concerned in the Hebrew, actually it is this uh, doubling up of, of, of a verb to give emphasis to what he's talking about. That's why the indeed is there. Uh, literally, it would be something more like, 
being concerned, I am concerned. And so what he's saying is, I am surely or indeed concerned about you. Now, the word here for concern is literally is to visit. And so uh, if we were to take it woodenly over from the Hebrew, it's visiting, I have visited you. Now, this is exactly like that president who would visit the location of a natural disaster. What does this mean? Well, God is showing concern, care, and involvement. I have visited you. Visiting, I have visited you. I am not distant. I am intimately involved and aware and present in your suffering, God says. This word for being concerned or caring or visiting is used in 1 Samuel. It's used in 1 Samuel when Hannah gave up her son Samuel to the Lord. And the Lord visited her, it says, and granted to her to have more children as a reward for her sacrifice of Samuel. It's used in Psalm 8. Where the psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moons and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? That word care is the same word here for being concerned or visiting. Now again, here in Exodus 3, 16, God is saying that he cares, but he's saying it not just, you know, I'm concerned about you guys, or I I care. No, he's saying it in a stronger way. He's doubling it up. He he intensifies the gravity and and, and and the reality of his intimate care of his people. Genesis 2.17, this doubling up of the word is also employed there in Genesis 2.17 where God promises as he warns Adam to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, for in the day that you eat from it, our translation says, you will surely die. But literally it is saying, for in the day that you eat from it, dying you will die. Genesis 46, verse 4, when God is promising to Jacob that God will deliver his children out of Egypt, he says there, I will go down with you to Egypt, and our translation says, and I will also surely bring you up again. And again, literally it is, I will go down with you to Egypt, and bringing you up, I will bring you up. This is communicating certainty. It's the idea that what is being promised or what is being said or communicated is beyond the shadow of a doubt. It is the guarantee of something that's future, and it is the absolute affirmation of something that is present. What does God communicate with absolute certainty. What is God affirming to be a reality that is beyond the shadow of a doubt? It is this, that he is with his people, that he knows their suffering, and that he cares. 
Christian, your faith in God must outweigh your fear of suffering. God is absolutely concerned for the pains in your life. He undoubtedly cares about your suffering. You can as much be assured of his involvement in your life that he is God himself. This is part of his character. And indeed, you must be assured of his involvement in your life, especially in your struggles, especially in suffering and trial. You must be assured in those times that God is not absent, but rather that he is there, present in the suffering. You must understand that. You must cling to that reality. Christian, he is there under the cloud of pain with you because he is indeed the one who sovereignly brought that cloud to you. He visits his people in their anguish. He is like a a loving husband who never leaves the side of the hospital bed of his wife who is critically ill. He is like that caring mother who constantly, constantly comes back to the bedroom of her sick child. Your God is not distant. He is present, Christian. And you can trust Him. You can trust Him. Now, God is kind and caring toward his loved ones. Yet what makes us worship him all the more is that he is himself, because he's God, he is greater than our circumstances. And so we believe that he is able to change our mourning into dancing, our crying into rejoicing. And the book of Exodus is actually a, this dazzling display of God's ability to deliver his people. It's meant to instill confidence in the power and the ability of God himself. We're going to see this over and over and over again, but this morning, I want to look a little closer than that. I want to ask the question, why? If God truly loves people, if God really cares, and if God is all-powerful, then why would he allow the Israelites to be enslaved and mistreated for hundreds of years? To put it simply, why does God allow suffering to begin with? This is point two this morning. Know that your suffering is not wasted. Why is there suffering? Well, because God has a purpose. He is carrying out His purposes in your life, in and through you. Notice what God promises, verse 17. 17 through 22. 
So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's one promise. And then verse 18 through 20 is another promise. They will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion, so I will stretch, you out, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. That's another promise. The third promise here is verse 21 and 22. I will grant this, grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, and thus you shall plunder the Egyptians." These are God's promises. They're threefold here in this passage. First, that they would be brought to a land of comfort and contentment, you could say, in verse 17. Second, verse 18 through 20, another promise is that they would be a people who serve and worship the true God who is good. And third, verse 21 and 22, is that they would experience riches and honor. Riches and honor seems to be what promised there in the last two verses. However, if you look closely, we see that these great promises would not mean anything without the suffering that preceded them. The promise really and fully is that God will deliver them from a foreign land of affliction to their own land of comfort and contentment. Secondly, the promise is that they would go from serving an oppressive tyrant to serving and worshiping the true God who is good. And third, they would, they would go from experiencing poverty-stricken lives to experiencing riches and honor. That, that is the fuller promise. The promise is not simply health, wealth, and prosperity. The promise is actually deliverance. That's the promise. Deliverance. Again, these promises are great, but they wouldn't mean anything to an Egyptian. Think about it. What good is a new land of comfort if you already have all the comforts of home? What is special about serving another king if you, if you already have a good and powerful king? What good is gold and silver if you're already rich? These promises would mean nothing to an Egyptian but they would mean everything to an Israelite. You see, the great and lavish blessings of God are seen as great and lavish only when we first understand how truly poor and helpless we are. 
Let me say that again. The great and lavish blessings of God are seen and appreciated as great and lavish only when you first understand how truly poor and helpless you are. See, this removes the entitlement kind of attitude that we adopt as Americans, as Christians. You are not entitled to anything good, Christian, except by your adoption in Christ. Now, these Israelites, they understood very intimately by experience just how much they needed God. They knew how poor and helpless they truly were. Thinking about these three promises again, they knew and appreciated how, how great these promises were because they had lived in a land that was not their own. It was not the promised land that God had vowed to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were a nation living within another nation. And so they never really knew what it was like to be home. They lived in constant need. There was nothing in their life. If you think about the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey, there was nothing in their present life that would be described as flowing except the constant flow of suffering. They served an oppressive and harsh tyrant in Pharaoh. Their subjection to abuse, though, was not limited to just this one Pharaoh, but to many. King after king after king, generation after generation after generation, the Israelites were under heavy-handed leadership. There wasn't wasn't this hope of, well, excuse me, we have this leader now. At least in four years, we can try and vote in another one. There was no hope like that. They didn't even know what that was like. They were forced to work as slaves. They were commanded to abort their children at birth. Their life was made bitter so that death would be sweet. This is what service to the kings of earth led to, suffering. Now notice the, 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 the promise is not, I will just deliver you from government. This is not liberation theology. It's not just uh, uh, answering to some authority is, in and of itself is bad, so I'm going to relieve you of that. No, it is... I will rescue you from that evil tyrant and I will place you under my rule as a good God. You will answer to a king and that king will be me, God says. Not only this, but the Israelites knew that they lived in poverty their whole lives. There was, for them, no such thing as generational wealth. There was no such thing as climbing the corporate ladder. They were never honored for their hard labors. Rather, 
They were only given enough to survive that day and so that they could work the next day. Think about that. Again, the, the promise that contrasts that to that they would have these, this gold and silver and clothing. We need to remember that uh, in, in, in the, the latter chapters of Exodus, this gold and silver and, and, the, and the clothing, the, the material of these clothings, would be used to build the temple. So it wasn't about prosperity, you see. It wasn't about riches. This is not what God's promising. All he's promising here is that you will have what you need to worship me. Now, does any of this sound familiar to you, Christian? Does any of these kinds of sufferings that the Israelites went through, does does any of that ring a bell in your life? Or can I ask you this? Or have you set up your life in such a way that you are free of suffering? Suffering should be an expected reality in the life of the Christian. We ought not to be a a kind of people who try and maneuver and set up our life so that there would be never any kind of suffering or heartache in our life. That shouldn't be our main goal. And yet, somehow we have integrated this American dream, this, this expectation of health and wealth and prosperity and this, and, this, and this entitlement to a suffering-free life. We have integrated that into Christianity when all the while it is a foreign thing to the Bible. Christian, your faith must outweigh your fear. You should not be surprised when you, as a Christian, do not have the things that the world has. That is a form of suffering. Because there are decisions that you will have to make where you put God first, where you put the church first, where you put ministry and, and your responsibilities to your family first in obedience to God. You, you, will, you will have to make decisions where you have to choose, am I going to obey God or am I going to seek riches? Am I going to obey Christ or am I going to pursue comfort? So don't be surprised when, as a Christian, you don't have the things that the world has. Don't be shocked when your apartment is not as big as that house. Don't be surprised when you're the odd one out because of your beliefs. Or when you have to combat the the lies and the vile sinfulness that your children are taught in schools. Don't be shocked when that happens. Don't be caught off guard when you get sick. Isn't that appropriate for us, church? Don't be caught off guard when you get sick or injured in any way. When a loved one dies, when a beloved child walks away from the Lord, 
when you have to love that difficult person, when you are mistreated or taken for granted, when you have to choose between obeying government or God, when you have to say no to comforts in order to say yes to God, don't be surprised. Rather, know that your suffering is not wasted. God is doing a work. He is intimately involved. And he will not waste your suffering. He will not fall by the wayside, unproductive. No, he's doing something with the suffering. And yet, at the same time, many of us exhaust ourselves with avoiding suffering. We make decisions that will increase our physical and our spiritual ease. We avoid situations where our comforts might be compromised. The New Testament has a lot to say about this. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through our faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, a lot of our, our Christianity, our understanding of our relationship with God stops at verse 5. But look at verse 6. He's not done. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice. He says it again with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. We have a great inheritance that awaits us, but th that future promise, those future glories that are anticipated in verse 3 and 4 and 5 are not here yet. Right now we live in verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. We live through suffering now. Trials, fiery trials even. He, he addresses this issue again in Chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you, Christian. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. What's he saying? 
Don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be shocked that you got COVID. Don't be shocked that you have cancer. Don't be shocked that you lost your job. Don't be surprised that your child is wayward. Don't be surprised that you have to live without while others seem to be living lavishly. Don't be surprised. In verse 13, what's happening? You are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You are getting a taste, a small morsel of the sufferings that he experienced. So that you can great, even more greatly appreciate the fullness of the suffering that he absorbed in your place, you see. If we crumble underneath a morsel of suffering, think of, of the greatness and the power and the glory of Christ, the incarnate Messiah who, who absorbed the full meal, as it were, the full cup of suffering in your place. It should make you worship him, you see. Yet we crumble under the weight of small suffering. Rather, it's supposed to get our eyes off this world and to, it says in verse 13, to that revelation of his glory. Your suffering today will make your rejoicing with exultation in that day all the greater. You see, when you try and avoid suffering, Christian, the reality is that we are trying to bring the perfections of heaven into our earthly lives. We are trying to force God's future promises into the present. We are robbing. Think of this. You, what you are doing is you are robbing heaven of its anticipation by trying to have your best life now. You see, this is not our home this should not be our best life. We shouldn't be striving to have our best life now. If this is your best life, it's been said, it's been said, if this is your best life, then you're headed for hell, not heaven. If you're headed for heaven, then that will be my best life. And I eagerly anticipate it, and the sufferings that I go through today loosen my grip on this world, on this life, as I anticipate being with Christ for all eternity. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We need to get through this here. Luke chapter 10. I pray that you would endure with me. I have a lot to say to you, dear saints, this morning. It's been a while. Luke 10, verse 2 and 3 He was saying to them, to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's a classic missions text. But notice the next verse. He says, go. So the, 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 the idea is, is, as we are senders of workers of the harvest into the mission field, we ought to be asking, am I to go as well? 
But, but notice that he doesn't just say, you are to go. He says, go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So as we live our lives as Christians, in our mission field, as we go, sent by Christ to expand his kingdom with the gospel, we are going as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now what happens when wolves and lambs meet up in the wilderness? Doesn't turn out so good for the lambs. It doesn't turn out so good for the lambs. Rather, he is, what he is saying, I am sending you as my ambassadors, and yes, you will suffer. But that's part of the plan. What else would you expect? Turn with me to John 15. John 15, verse 18 through 20. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love his, its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they, would, they will keep yours also, what's Christ saying here? That as you go as his ambassador, as you declare the gospel with your loved ones and your co-workers and perfect strangers, as you go and do this, expect that many will reject you. Now, in their rejecting of you, what they're rejecting is your message and in their rejecting of the message that you bring, they're rejecting Christ. So it's really not about you. It's about him. They're rejecting him. So don't take it so personally. And don't be surprised, he says. If they rejected me, they're going to reject you. Of course, we have the same message. We have the same gospel. So, of course, we will suffer rejection from people. Of course. God does not promise a life of ease to the Christian. Now, here in America, especially here in California, if you're paying attention, if you don't have your head under the sand or under a rock somewhere, if you're paying attention, we are just now, church, beginning to experience the normal Christian life. People talk about COVID. And we just want to get back to normal. We want to get back to normal. Well, in the, for the history of the church, the, what has been normal is pure persecution and oppression. It is rejection. It is being the odd ones out. It is being denied things, the comforts of the world, because we are Christian. That is the normal. And so really, we are going a little bit more back to, quote-unquote, normal. What we, what we have experienced by God's grace in America, this freedom, isn't, isn't the, the story of the historical church. So don't be surprised if 
some crazy person becomes our governor and, and begins to demand that your children be taught wicked things in schools. Don't be surprised at that. Don't be surprised that, that uh, the government is telling you that you need to pay the government and they're going to use some of that money to kill children. Don't be surprised that the gathering of the saints is treated so lightly and flippantly by those who are in power. Don't be so surprised that, that your co-workers don't want to hear it again or your loved ones are sick and tired of Jesus that you keep on bringing to them. Don't be surprised at these things. That's normal Christian life. That is a normal Christian life. Now, i got to say this. If you're not experiencing suffering, then there's, there, there is... It could be that God's being gracious and, and, and sheltering you from that, but it could be that you're not truly living the normal Christian life. If there isn't some measure of suffering, you ought to wonder, God, what, what's going on? Also, just because legislation in our nation says that you can do something or even that you should do something, just because legislation prizes or promotes a certain lifestyle or a certain sin or a certain way of living, that doesn't make it right. In fact, what I'm enjoying about this whole last handful of years is that it's becoming more and more clarifying that the church is indeed separate from the world. The church is not American republicanism. That is not the church. We're seeing this great separation. We should be okay with that and, and welcome that. If, if our ideals line up perfectly with the ideals of our government as it is today, then we are in serious compromise. That should be a red flag if your policies line up with the policies of those in power. It's becoming more and more clear that you have forgotten what God says in His Word. Now, turn with me one more. John 11, going back to why, why all of this? Why am I suffering in my life? Why am I going without while others have? Why do I feel like a, a foreigner in my own nation? John 11, why does God allow suffering? Look, at, look with me at verse 1. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end with death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So, it's said multiple times, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He cared for them. He loved them dearly. But yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he just waited two more days. Now, what happened in those two days was that Lazarus died from his illness. Now, we're, 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 we seem stuck. I thought Jesus loved him. Why did he let him die? I, I thought Jesus said it's not going to end in death. Why did he let him die? I thought he was going to glorify himself, and God was going to glorify Christ uh, through what's going on in Lazarus' life. Why did he let him die? Verse 11. And this he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has, had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, plainly Lazarus is dead. Okay, so Lazarus is dead. And I am, verse 15, glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus says, Lazarus died, and this is actually good. How can it be good? And therefore Thomas, who was called Dynamis, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jump down to verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to, to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Twice, the women say that if only Jesus had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. So why did Jesus delay? Why did he not heal Lazarus from a distance even as soon as he heard of his sickness? He could have done that. But these women, their, their faith in Christ was outweighed by their suffering. Their suffering and their grieving was so great that they thought all had been lost and there was no turning back from this death. So why did he let him die? Verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Mary said to him, or Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But right now he's dead, Jesus. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. How could Jesus have proven that he is the resurrection and the life if Lazarus had not died? Because in verse 38 it says, So Jesus, being again deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a, stove, uh, a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And when Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw, that he, saw what he had done believed in him. Jesus could not have raised Lazarus from the dead if he wasn't already dead. So how could they have seen the glory of Christ in this way unless first they had to suffer the passing of Lazarus? Also, how, how would they have seen that Jesus, the Son of God, weeps with them in their grief and joins with them in their suffering, in their sadness, if Lazarus had not died? They wouldn't have experienced that. If Jesus just simply said a word and he was healed, they wouldn't have experienced the, the co-grieving with Christ. That he enters into their suffering with them. They wouldn't have seen these glories of Jesus if, in this way if Lazarus was not allowed to die by Christ. That is why God allows suffering. So that you would believe that he cares for you. Christian, you must believe that. And out of that faith that he truly cares for you in your suffering, obey his direction in your life, even if it means possibly walking right into suffering. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is Forever faithful to you, beloved. He is your solid rock in a world of sand. He is your anchor in a world of waves. He is your guarantee in a world of uncertainty. Your faith in God must outweigh your fear of suffering, Christian. So think of it this way. Your suffering is the setup for the glory of Christ to be displayed. Instead of running from suffering, Christian, stay there. Stay there and watch Christ visit you there. It, it is here in the reality of this, of this fallen and broken world where you will see the glory of Christ on display all the more clearly in your life. It's here. 
So why is there suffering? Well, of course, because of evil and sin. Yet also, because God sovereignly brings it about, He is in control of it all. He brings about suffering in your life so that you would desire heaven more, appreciate God's goodness more, so that you would see Christ's glory more. At times, He allows suffering to get you to stop sinning. It's not all the time. But at times, He does use suffering to do that. He allows suffering so that you would appreciate Christ's suffering for you. He allows suffering so that you would experience the power of God in your life. He allows it to draw you nearer and deeper in your relationship with Him. And sinner, if you don't know the Lord today, he allows, He's allowing you to go through your suffering that you're going through right now because He's trying to get your attention. So that you would realize, I, I can't fix this. I need God to reign over my life. I have made a mess of it. My suffering is a result of sin, and I need to forsake my allegiance to sin and self and, uh, and, and place my humble allegiance upon Christ and submit to Him, His Lordship, and receive His forgiveness. Put it shortly, God allows suffering for His glory and for your good. There are a myriad of details and specific reasons and workings that God does within that, those two headings. But overall, He allows it for His glory and for your good. So know that your suffering is not wasted and know that your God cares. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we thank you. Yes, Lord, we thank you that you allowed our church to go through what it has gone through these last few weeks. It wasn't easy by, by, by any means. It was very difficult for many of us, myself included. But Lord, you have shown yourself good in the midst of that. You've proven yourself once again. You've done your work once again. And we can give you praise now, Lord. We, we acknowledge there is nothing that we bring to the table, Lord, except our doubts, our, 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 our sinfulness, Lord. We cast it all upon you. We, we trust in you, Lord, that you care for us, that you are with us here in our suffering. We ask that your presence would be made known to your people. You would minister, minister to them, Lord, even now. Be with them, Lord. Be with your people this week. May they experience your closeness, your nearness. May they cry out to you from under the clouds. God, may you be glorified. May you make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, through it all. We pray in his name. Amen.
Amen. Amen. And because he paid it all, our future is sure. His, his care, his tender care for you, Christian, is bought by the blood of Christ. Revel in that. Trust in that. I encourage you. Just before uh, we pray and, and let you go, I want to make sure that we're clear. Well, we're going to gather again next Sunday in person. Again, we're going to continue to practice all the safety measures that we've been doing 